This is They Create Worlds, episode 169, Activision and Kotick, part 3. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well, Alex, I have a cake here. It has seven candles on it. We have to blow out all the candles together. I bet the listeners may even know why. We use webcams as we record, Jeffrey. I can see you. I can see the room. There is no cake. The cake is, in fact, a lie. Okay, fine. I'll bring up this video of a cake to blow out, (laughs) and then that will do it, and I'll hold it up to the camera. While the cake may be a lie, however, that seven is definitely not a lie, because yes, if you have not already guessed, this episode marks seven years of They Create Worlds. That is quite the frightening number to think about in retrospect. Dear Lord, that's a lot of editing. Absolutely. As I'm sure most of our listeners know, ever since we've started this podcast, we have put out two episodes a month, every month. Without fail. We almost failed once. We don't talk about that. It still counts. Most podcasts, sane podcasters, will organize their content into seasons, and they will take breaks. We do not take breaks. We have done two episodes a month for seven years running now. Yeah, that translates into a whole lot of talking for me and an even more whole, whole, whole lot of editing for Jeffrey. Of course, we wouldn't still be doing this, and we would not have some of the motivation to keep doing this if it wasn't for you, the listeners. It's really amazing the, frankly, pathetic level of publicity we do. (laughs) It's not like we go out there and go, Hail, merchant, bring us many podcasts to the world. No, it's all word of mouth. That is purely you, the listeners. You telling your friends, family, other people on the internet going, these guys over here, they're really good at talking about something about video game history. When I go, hey, there's this cool thing about Sega I love. What's the history behind that? And someone goes, ah, there's some guys over there that know a lot about Sega. (laughs) You know, I really love those Nintendo card games that they used to make back in the 1920s. There's some guys who came up with way too many episodes about Nintendo to tell you all about it. (laughs) That's right. This started, as we've said in other episodes, because I would talk Jeffrey's ear off when we would go get dinner or hang out or whatever else. He was like, why don't we tell other people these stories too? And while we'll certainly always be a little bit niche, just because we do deep dives and we do long deep dives, I really think that if I can toot my own horn on my own podcast, and if I can't there, where can I? I really do believe that we bring the most in-depth, insightful historical content on the web in terms of podcasts. There are many other people that are also doing great work. There's many ways to approach this, many levels of engagement to approach this at. But in terms of just doing deep dives into these businesses and into this industry and trying to make sense of it all, I think this is really uh, the source for that. And that's what keeps us going knowing that we're providing something that we feel is useful and knowing that we have a listening audience that has really responded to that and wants all of these crazy in-depth stories on how this crazy industry came to be. 
keep singing our praises or whatever it is you do in order to spread the word out there. And of course, thank you, every one of you who supports us on Patreon. I really appreciate it. It helps offset the financial costs of just doing anything relating to this. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, buys me a couple of cases of Diet Coke every month in order to stay sane as I edit. It's important to the process. If someone was just like, wait a minute, my Patreon money is going towards diet soda. It's like, no, you don't understand. This is why we have the podcast. Without the Diet Coke, there is no podcast. So thank you very much, everyone, for your support. If you do like what you listen to, we do have that Patreon. We certainly urge you to give whatever you feel is appropriate. And of course, as we always say, there's no pressure to give because this podcast always will be free because this is knowledge that has been hard to come by. It's been hard to come by really good, in-depth video game history in any medium. We do feel it's important to get this material out there. We always want this podcast to be free, and it always will be free. We do thank those that have enjoyed what we do and have kicked a little something our way in gratitude as well. To further that, we are also going to be going live, where you can see our smiling faces just as we see our smiling faces right now. Except live and in Technicolor. Maybe even HD, or dare I say it, UHD, I don't know, ooh, that sounds scary. Anyway, yes, uh, after a year hiatus uh, due to uh, Alex taking a uh, cross-country trip to new locales and uh, new opportunities, we are returning to our once-a-year live streaming ways. What we like to do here at They Create Worlds is every year pick a topic that is a really, really big, expansive topic, something that can cover at least three episodes, but it's not just the episode count. We're about to record a part three today. It's not just about can we do three parts. It's that this is a big, huge, overarching thing in video game history. In the past, we've looked at the console war between Sega and Nintendo. We've looked at what we feel are the most influential games of all time. We even went really bonkers last time around and decided to do the grand history of everything in the course of three episodes. This year, we will once again be returning to a big topic in video game history, which is the home computer price wars of the early 1980s. This is a topic that doesn't often get a lot of attention, I think, in gaming circles. I think in part because the great video game crash that happened at almost the same time sucks up all the bandwidth and takes all the oxygen out of the room when it comes to talking about big economic forces going on in the early 1980s. This was a very big deal where basically the entire home computer industry ends up getting wiped out due to massive price wars. Now, when I say home computer industry, I realize there's still computers. It's not like personal computers went away, but there was a specific category of computer that considered the home computer in that period of time that was a little cheaper to differentiate it from machines like the Apple II or the original IBM PC that were more expensive. This home computer market was becoming both a complement to and a threat to the console industry at the same time. And just as the console industry collapsed, it was coincidentally going through its own shakeout. We want to spend some time on that, three episodes. It won't just be three episodes on specifically that 82 to 84 period. We'll kind of talk about the rise of home computing generally broadly going back to the uh, 70s and then take that to this inflection point and kind of talk about all of this craziness that happened within this two years period to basically wipe everything out. Should be a good time. We'll be doing that live, all three episodes in one gigantic recording with a couple of breaks for meals or whatever, all in one day. 
Don't expect many, if any, to stay the whole time, but drop in, drop out. We do chat with people as we go. We have some fun with it. Should be a good time. That will be September 24th at 5.30 GMT, 5.30 p.m. GMT, 17.30 for you 24-hour people. That would be 12.30 Central Time and 10.30 Pacific. Absolutely. That'll, of course, be on twitch.tv. The link to everything related to that is on theycreateworlds.com, a website that I occasionally poke and update. That's right. Before we can have a live stream of glory, we have a few other episodes we have to get through, a few other topics. We actually have all the episodes planned through 174, which is kind of frightening. We're not usually that well prepared. Yeah, we usually do it a little off the cuff, though. Whenever we approach the live stream, we've done this in the past. When we've got the live stream coming up, we kind of have to figure out a few months together so that we make sure that nothing collides horribly, because that is a lot of extra editing for Jeffrey to do, because with the live stream, there's always a lot more dead space back and forth stuff that needs to be massaged even more than the typical two or three part episodes. So we try to make sure that we get some episodes planned out. Right now, we have an epic conclusion that we have to do to another three-parter that will not be live-streamed. This revolution will not be televised. All I have to do is just go over to Discord, (laughs) go to a certain thing, and then push broadcast. That's true. But we're not going to do that as we continue and conclude the epic tale of Bobby Kotick and his resurrection of Activision. In part one of this journey, we kind of looked at Bobby Kotick as a person and as a businessman leading up to his time entering the video game industry and then went over in some detail how he managed to purchase the company and take control of the company from an executive standpoint as well. In part two, we talked about the early years of this new Activision, the early to mid-90s what assets they had available to them and how they leveraged those assets to finally turn a profit by the 1996 fiscal year. Now we're going to finish this look by taking a kind of broader look at the next decade or so of Activision, ending with the merger of the company with Vivendi Interactive to form Activision Blizzard. We're not going to take the story any further forward than that. Obviously, there's been a lot in the next decade following that with Activision Blizzard and then with the independent Activision Blizzard once it was no longer a Vivendi subsidiary. And there's been a lot in the news over the past few months with all of the sexual harassment stuff and the Microsoft purchase, uh, etc. It's too soon to have a handle on any of that. These are very important topics. Uh, There's a lot of great reporting going on on a lot of this, particularly in the Washington Post, if you're interested in kind of the blow-by-blow of what's going on today. To take this stuff from a historical standpoint, we can't yet. There's a lot that needs to become clear and be put into context about what's going on with Activision Blizzard today that from a historical perspective just can't be done yet. So we are going to stop this look at about 2007. Maybe seven years from now. (laughs) I was thinking the same thing. So we're going to pencil in at 2030. We will cover this topic again. Bobby Kotick, part four, the historical retrospective. Could be. Remember editing Jeffrey of the future, the far, far distant future. You must make reference to this episode. (laughs) Right. But for now, let's uh, turn back the clock to late 1995, early 1996 
where we now have an Activision that for the first time in its 1996 fiscal year, which if we remember from previous episodes, their fiscal year runs to March, which means that most of the 1996 fiscal year is actually stuff that happened in 1995 has finally turned a profit for the first time and seems to be on some more solid footing. As always, the question becomes, what happens now? The answer to that question is that Activision begins to change over the next couple of years, 1996, 1997, 1998. It's no longer the scrappy underdog anymore. It is still very much an underdog, but it's not so much the scrappy upstart underdog. This is a company now that has gone from almost nothing when Bobby Kotick purchased it at the end of 1991 to having a very solid revenue base in the tens of millions of dollars and, for the first time, something of a profit as well. It's clear, though, that they are going to need something more to run with the big dogs. They've had some successes. MechWarrior 2 has been a success. But these successes are not entirely in step with the way the market is right now. They've had some success by returning to the adventure game well and mining the Infocom properties. That market is starting to wane a little bit by the middle of the 90s. They've done it by kind of exploring Sillywood in the interactive movie, again, in part through the Zork series, through their adventure game legacy. This is also a market that is starting to wane. They've got a big game that they're developing during this time period that finally comes out in 1996 called Spycraft, the Great Game, which was a multimedia CD-ROM interactive movie project that they really hyped because it had the uh, participation, both as a consultant and even as an actor playing himself within the game, former CIA director William Colby as well as a former KGB general, Oleg Kalugin, also contributed. This was kind of meant to be their next big adventure game kind of hit. It's something new, but they're trying to build on this brand of using the actual CIA, using the actual KGB. It's got interactive movie sequences, and it's a fairly linear adventure game. It has some interesting ideas for a game of this type, Basically, the way it works is you've got segments of video and then segments of puzzle solving that are supposed to be based on real CIA tactics and techniques, how much they really are, who can say. But again, that's the marketing spin. Once you solve puzzle, you get another pre-canned video sequence. It's all very linear. It's kind of the height of this whole silly wood idea that we've talked about in the past. That's just not really in vogue anymore. That's supposed to be the big game of 1996. And while it gets a little bit of positive press, I don't think it really sells all that brilliantly. They continue to do more Zork games. They release a Zork game called Zork Grand Inquisitor in 1997, actually designed by a former lawyer turned video game designer. But again, it's a commercial disappointment because this genre is starting to fail. On the MechWarrior side of things, they actually terminate the MechWarrior license after MechWarrior 2. They did do an expansion to it, but after that, they got out of the MechWarrior business, this game that sold hundreds of thousands of copies and became a real catalyst for their success. But the licensing deal wasn't very good. The structure of it wasn't very good. So even though the game was successful and was responsible for them, regaining a lot of their financial footing. I mean, we can't undersell how crucial that game was. They made money on it. 
But they didn't reap the full benefits of it because of the deal, which predated Bobby Kotick, you know, it was the old Activision that originally signed with FASA, just did not give them much financial reward for what they did. And so they decided to move on from that license. The team behind the game, the people that finally saved that product when it was in such danger of falling apart, as we talked about last episode, Zach Norman and Sean Feshi, when they were thinking about what they wanted to do next, they decided to take MechWarrior 2 kind of simulation gameplay and bring it into a more contemporary setting, specifically the 1970s. It turns out that Zach Norman at that time, when they were trying to figure out what to do next after MechWarrior 2, was in the market for a new car. So he was reading a lot of car magazines, particularly Auto Trader, and seeing the muscle cars in this magazine, you know, these big, bold cars from the 70s inspired him and Veshi both to come up with kind of an action game, a driving and action game with simulation elements. I mean, you know, again, like MechWarrior, lots of simulation elements set in the 1970s. And so they created a game called Interstate 76 based on that concept. But again, it kind of missed the mark. This is very early polygonal days. So it has polygonal graphics, but the characters are very, very, very boxy. They made a decision that they wanted all of the in-game action to be within the in-game engine. So even the cutscenes are in the 3D engine that the actual gameplay is in, which means you have the same boxy, non-textured, expressionless characters in the cutscenes as you do in the gameplay. That was unusual at that time. At that time, if you had a cutscene, you usually tried to do something that could be a little more expressive on its own. The graphics were a bit off-putting. I mean, they were noble for what they were trying to do, because it was at the bleeding edge. You, of course, remember, Jeffrey, how hard it was to swallow kind of 3D graphics for things like human figures in this kind of weird late 90s period before you had high polygon counts and good anti-aliasing. It actually helped that you had CRT televisions back in the day. Because CRT televisions actually give a bit of fuzziness, Mm -hmm. a bit of non-definition to it. There's a few examples out there of showing, just like, say, games from the Super Nintendo and how the character selection screen, if you use the high-resolution things of televisions now, LCD displays and whatnot, you can see every single pixel. And it looks terrible. (laughs) But if you put it through a CRT where you have that fuzziness, that non-definition, blurs and blends it and then your mind fills in those little gaps and actually looks way way better than it has any right to be they did that by design too i mean the the designers themselves knew that the crt had that effect and they would use that blending to create a larger color palette essentially because they could blend two colors using that crt blending in order to create something else That was good for that kind of game but with polygonal stuff you really couldn't hide much it was all stark lines You had very low polygon counts because you didn't have the processing power. This is just at the dawn of GPUs as separate chips in your computer. Even then, the early GPUs could only push so many polygons. You ended up with a lot of games that looked very weird at that time. I mean, think of with Interstate 76. I mean, we'll put it in the show notes, of course. But basically, think about the level of polygon count of something of, say, Star Fox, except having that applied to human beings, because even the original Star Fox was smart enough to not try to render Fox McCloud and gang as polygons, but it was that same kind of low polygon count. 
except applied to full humans and their muscle cars. So it was graphically kind of off-putting, even though it was a noble effort. It was too hardcore simulation for the action fans, but it wasn't the kind of game that appeals to the hardcore simulation people because it's not operating complex military hardware, which is basically what the hardcore simulation crowd wants. So it kind of missed its audience in both directions. Even though we've got a company that's reached this new high point, they're kind of slipping a little bit in moving on from this point. It's like they've come so far and then it's hard to move on. They're a little slow. Activision has always been a conservative company about moving into new markets. This has been true throughout Kotick's time. This has been good and bad for the company at various times. At times, they've missed segments of the market. They were slow to get into internet gaming. But at other times, their reluctance to get into Facebook gaming, for instance, social gaming in the mid-2000s probably saved them a bit when that ended up being a real flash in the pan. They've definitely always been conservative. And one thing that definitely stands out in this period is that they were slow to get on consoles effectively. We talked about the Super Pitfall game last time. It's not like they weren't on consoles at all, but it was still very much a PC-first kind of company. Even though it would get on the PlayStation, it would get on the N64, it's not that it didn't get on these console platforms. You could tell they were PC-first, and you could tell that they were stuck in an old mode of PC gaming, which was kind of these adventure games, these silly wood games, these hardcore simulations. The kind of games that in the post-Doom world are losing ground. Where does Activision stand in all of this, kind of in the late 1990s, 96, 97, 98? Well, they're there. They exist. They don't put out very many memorable games, but they continue to grow their revenue streams. 1996, we said they had uh, 86.6 million in revenues. We might not have said that, but either way, we're saying it now. And they had that first profit of 5.9 million. 1997, their revenues jump way up to 189 million. But their profits only barely rise. They only go up to 7.6 million. The next year, their revenue explodes again in 1998, 312 million. But their profit is only 5 million. They're treading water. A big part of the reason that their revenues are going up is that they are expanding into new product categories and new areas of doing business, but those aren't necessarily delivering a lot to the company. One of the things that they really focus on in this period is upping their distribution game. We talked about last time how one of the few assets that Bobby Kotick had when he took over Activision, one of the few assets that Activision itself had, was incredible domestic distribution built up over their years of being such a preeminent third-party console publisher and then a computer game publisher. So they've still got that. And in this period, they really invest in their overseas, their European particularly, publishing capacity. So in 1997, they buy two companies. One of these is Centersoft, which is one of the premier UK publishers. We talked about them a little bit in our IDOS episode because when IDOS became a big company, the way that they kind of finagled that is by buying a bunch of other companies and and US Gold slash Centersoft was kind of a part of that. But they weren't really in it for the distribution side of it. They were getting the developers and everything. So Centersoft ends up becoming a part of Activision in 1997. They buy a German distributor as well. Germany is the most powerful market on the continent. 
So they buy a company called NBG. It's an acronym for a really long German name. But they buy a company called NBG as well in 1997. Both of these purchases were in November. The combination of these two companies gave them a really, really big publishing presence in the United Kingdom, and they really took advantage of this to expand deals with companies to release their games in the European market. Centersoft, for instance, had a big Sony deal. They didn't have all of the Sony distribution. Sony did a lot of its own distribution as well, but basically a lot of the independent stuff that Sony wasn't doing through its own distribution, they were doing through Centersoft, so that was a big deal. They make a deal with LucasArts to distribute their titles in Europe. They do a few other kind of European distribution deals with companies that don't have great access to that market. They've built up their distribution. They leverage their national and international distribution markets to sign some big names as GT Interactive is kind of falling apart a little bit. They sign id Software. They're not making the modern kind of post-Doom kind of games themselves, but they do sign a deal with id Software and become the distributors for Quake 2 domestically and internationally. So that's kind of a big deal. That's a good one for them to have. They expand into budget software, value software, the stuff that you and I would turn up our noses at. But in the late 1990s, because the PC was coming down in price so rapidly, due to the wars between the clone makers, due to more people buying PCs for the home, to be able to take their work home with them, because first the multimedia revolution and then the internet made people feel like their children would be missing out educationally if they didn't have a computer because of the dot-com boom, where everyone's saying, hey, the internet's the next big thing, get on board. You really had prices of low-end PCs, basic computers to just maybe get you on the internet and do some basic word processing and that kind of thing. You really had those computers coming down in price rapidly in the late 1990s, and you had penetration of PCs in the home just exploding. This caused a couple of trends. First of all, it meant that a lot of stores that weren't necessarily interested before in carrying PC software were now interested in carrying PC software. We're talking about Big box retailers like the Walmarts of the world are now suddenly like, oh, hey, we need to have some PC software because this is something that everyone's buying. But then the other thing is you had a lot of people with lower incomes and with lower technology literacy, lower interest in the industry and how it worked, suddenly having PCs and needing software for it. These kind of two forces aligned in such a way that you had a real rise in budget software which is just really simple games, really simple home productivity software that doesn't take a lot of money to develop, that doesn't have the latest bells and whistles, can run on just about any PC under the sun, and which is relatively cheap for this new kind of consumer. This industry, uh, incidentally, interestingly enough, really largely developed in the Minneapolis area. Which is not in any way a coincidence, because uh, Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, is the home of Target. This budget software was particularly appealing to big box mass market retailers like Walmart and Target because it didn't cost them much. You know, it was cheaper software. It was something they could sell at a cheap price and still make a a profit. And of course, these big box retailers like Walmart and Target are all about. They always tout themselves as the place you can get your stuff for cheaper. It was really their audience, the people shopping in their stores anyway, that were this new audience for this value PC stuff. 
We talked about this, I think, in another episode, I'm sure. But the thing about companies like Walmart and Target is they don't want to go to a bunch of different companies to buy this kind of stuff. They don't want to be involved in it at all. They don't want to deal in the minutia of figuring out what their shelf space looks like in computer software, because there are so many titles. I mean, we talked about California Pacific's, for instance, struggle with specialty retailers because those retailers just wanted to deal with a single distributor for all of their software needs. And so they didn't want to go to individual software publishers like California Pacific. You've got something similar to that here, but it's even another layer of abstraction. They don't even want to go to a distributor that has all of the software titles and get that distributor's help in making sense of the market. They just want someone to come in, stock their shelves, and not even think about it. It's not the kind of market they want to be intimately involved in. You would have a small number of companies then that would basically get the contracts to do the majority of the software. I think we talked about GT Interactive at some point on the podcast and how their rise to fame, their real rise to power was that they got the exclusive distributorship to Walmart. They supplied Walmart with all of their software because Walmart didn't want to deal with it. There were companies that sprang up in Minneapolis near Target to capture the Target business in this new value area. So another thing that Activision decided to get involved with, because budget software was supposed to be a growing, growing, growing field, is they decided to get involved in budget software as well. So in addition to purchasing these two international distributors, they also then a couple of years later in 1999 purchased a couple of value software publishers as well to kind of capture the low end of the market. So in July 1998, they purchased a company called Head Games that was based in the Minneapolis area. Their big claim to fame, their big product, was Cabela's Big Game Hunter. If you didn't live through the late 90s and early 2000s, you don't understand what a big deal hunting games were on PCs. There was a certain segment of the population that loved hunting games. And Cabela's Big Game Hunter was one of the best-selling video games, computer games, really, not comparing it to the video game market, strictly the PC market, was one of the best-selling computer games month after month after month. It was never the top seller, to my knowledge, but it was always in the top 10. People just liked to be able to pretend they were hunting from the comfort of their own home, and you could sell these games cheaply, and they didn't put much effort into them, and they just sold. Activision bought them in July 1998. Then in March 1999, they bought a second company, a Florida company this time, called Expert Software that largely focused more on cheap productivity software, more so than games. I think they had a few game products as well. It was more focused on productivity software. This was the Activision of this period. They were expanding their market by trying to get into budget software and by getting into international distribution. On the game side, they still had their Activision Studios pumping out some games, but a lot of those games, as I said, were kind of out of step with the new market. They were getting some distribution of things like Quake 2, which were very positive for them. They were bringing in money and they were getting this value thing going. But this is why their revenues were growing, but their profits really weren't. They were expanding their reach And they were extending the breadth of their product, but they weren't really doing so in a way that brings in a lot of money. The distribution stuff's great, but you can only make so much money from distribution. The publishers are making more money on that stuff. The retailers, you know, you're the middleman. 
budget software, okay, fine, they had some things that did okay, but it's cheap software. So again, you're not making that much money. So that's why we have a situation where sales are going up, up, up. Revenues are going up, up, up. But income is not. And then this finally all catches up to them. So they have a great year in 1999. Again, sales go up $437 million in revenue. This time they have a big year, and we'll get to why in a little bit, but they have a much bigger year in profits. They rise all the way to $14.9 million. That's uh, $10 million more in profit than the year before, almost $15 million. Then the next year, their acquisition strategy comes back to bite them in the ass. So again, revenues go up in 2000. And again, this is the fiscal year ending in March 2000, so it's mostly 1999. They go up again to $572 million. And just in terms of their product growth, their income rises to $20 million. But that's just in terms of the way their product is looking. It turns out that the expert software purchase is an absolute disaster. The product's no good. The company's no good. They end up merging it into head games and basically eliminating it. They eliminate the Florida company. They get rid of the product lines. They get rid of everything. They take a huge $60 billion charge against some of this reorganization that they have to do. They end up with a loss in 2000 of $34 million. So they're kind of at a crossroads here. They're growing rapidly. And and this was a one-time charge. They don't expect to keep losing money in the future. It's embarrassing. But they don't expect this to be a problem in the future. The stock takes a hit, of course, but then the stock starts to recover again. They've grown to the point at this point where they have a market share that's really second only to electronic arts in the United States. They're doing okay, but they're flat. And they're mostly U.S.-focused. They are mostly have their success in the U.S., despite their expansion to the European publishers. And they're just kind of treading water. There's a few things that change this. First of all, they do belatedly kind of understand that there's a new market, and then they need to get into it. So they start focusing on trying to get themselves into console gaming and first-person shooters on PCs. These are two areas that they have clearly been deficient in. They make their first purchase in 1997 of a developer. They do have internal development. They have the Activision Studios, but they make their first acquisition of an outside developer, and that is Raven Software. Raven Software, they're still around, but they got their start by basically piggybacking off of the stuff the id guys were doing. They licensed id's engines, and they made some similar games, Heretic and Hexen. I know you're familiar with Heretic at the very least. (laughs) I am familiar with both. Yes, I thought you might be. I did enjoy them. Yes, and so they bought Raven Software. Hexen 2 was developed before the purchase, but released by Activision. They did that basically to bolster their ability in the first-person shooter space and in, in the PC space that mattered these days. The other thing that they do is they decide they're going to make a state-of-the-art, wonderful, amazing third-person shooter game for the Sony PlayStation. The new hotness. This game is going to star none other than Mr. Die Hard himself, Bruce Willis, who they signed to a pretty large deal that reportedly included even an equity stake in Activision in order to get the rights to his likeness and to get him to star in the game, record lines for the game, all of that stuff. This was going to be the game that really threw them into the big time. Big 3D third-person shooter. Big star attached to it. The hot PlayStation platform. Everything you could possibly want in a video game 
circa 1998. There's just one problem. It turns out that the company that they've asked to develop this game has very little idea of what they're doing working with this 3D engine. The title gets to be in complete and utter trouble. They enlist another company to take over this project and try to save it. A little company by the name of Neversoft. The company Neversoft was the brainchild of three individuals, Joel Jewett, Mick West, and Chris Ward. I think it's fair to say that the driving force behind the company, the person that led the company, was Joel Jewett, a very interesting individual. He actually grew up in Montana, a small town in Montana, which is not generally considered a hotbed of tech innovators. He was very much into outdoor activities, but he also had allergies that prevented him from doing certain things that he really wanted to do, like horse riding. He was a kind of larger-than-life character, still is, he's still alive, fond of partying and fond of outdoor activities and fond of extreme sports and all of this stuff, but he's also a really, really smart guy. He gets a full ride to university, wastes the first three years of it partying, and then decides he really needs to knuckle down and get himself a degree. So he decides in his last year to focus on accounting. He chooses a card accounting because he figured that was one of the hardest things he could do. Ended up graduating and then moving to California to work for Delawitt Haskins and Sells, who had as one of their clients a company called Malibu Comics. Malibu was one of this kind of new wave of indie comic book companies that had grown up in the late 80s and early 1990s in this golden age of comic books when the industry was briefly kind of expanding beyond the kind of Marvel DC paradigm. As with many media companies in this time period, because of the whole Sillywood thing and everything, they also decided that they would try to get into video games, and so they founded an interactive division as well. Malibu Comics Entertainment, to make video games. Jewett became familiar with all of these kind of video game activities in the video game industry by being an accountant working uh, for this accounting firm on the Malibu Comics account, decided it was interesting, and ended up joining Malibu Comics Entertainment. And then when it seemed like things were definitely not going to really work out there, I mean, the, the company was never successful. In 1994, he and, and these other two guys working there, Mick West and Chris Ward, banded together to establish Neversoft in 1994. Neversoft in its early years was not very successful. It tried a couple of games. They had a license with Playmates uh, for something called Skeleton Warriors that ended up being canceled in its Genesis version. They did do it for next-gen consoles, but it really wasn't that impressive. It didn't do very good. Then they got a contract with Crystal Dynamics to do a Ghost Rider game, uh, the Marvel Comics character, but it was canceled. They did some ports for Shiny Entertainment to keep themselves going, and then started work on their own shooter called Big Guns. This Big Guns project, which was never actually released, attracted Activision's attention because it seemed like the graphics engine and the technology underlying that game seemed pretty solid and seemed like maybe this is something that they could use to rescue the Apocalypse game. They end up contracting with Neversoft to take over development of this Apocalypse game starring Bruce Willis. So this third-person action game that was supposed to kind of put them on the map on consoles and put them on the map on the PlayStation didn't really pan out, didn't really 
do much. It was just mediocre. But the important thing was, is it gave them this relationship with Neversoft. After this, the next thing that they decided they wanted to try to do at Activision, extreme sports were kind of becoming more and more popular in the late 90s. The X Games and all of that kind of stuff. Skateboarding was starting to become more popular. Neversoft, through the Apocalypse game with their technology, had proved themselves to have a really solid 3D engine for third-person game design. Activision, looking for another area where maybe they could break in, where nobody was really doing anything, asked Neversoft to take on the creation of a skateboarding game as their follow-up product to Apocalypse. It turned out, and I do think this was coincidence, because Activision was going to them because they had the technology, not because of any other reason, that Joel Jewett himself was hugely into skateboarding and skateboarding culture. He was really, really gung-ho about this project. There was an arcade near the Neversoft offices. The staff at Neversoft had played a Sega arcade game quite a bit at this arcade by the name of Top Skater which was an interesting game in its own right. It used a skateboard controller interface. This was the period of time when coin-op companies were trying to counter the effects of the home console market, starting to have graphics that were comparable with what you could do in the arcade by having more and more custom controllers and other kinds of special game experiences that you couldn't get in the home. So they created this game Top Skater. The thing that was interesting about it, I mean, it was a way over-the-top game because it was an arcade game, so it wasn't really realistic skating. But the interesting thing about it is that it was kind of an open-world game where the goal of the game was just to go around the world of the game doing tricks on ramps, on railings, on any objects, just doing various uh, skateboarding tricks in order to gain points. Because it's an arcade game, it has a time limit. You can essentially extend your time limit by performing more and more tricks. The concept of the game is to keep riding around this world performing tricks to score points to keep your game going. And collecting those golden rings so that you can relive your <laughs> Sonic the Hedgehog nostalgia while skateboarding, I guess. I mean, it's Sega. Absolutely. This really resonated with Joel Jewett and the other people at Neversoft, because other skateboarding games that had come out before, and, and none of them were particularly realistic, but games like 720 Degrees, Skate or Die, what games had come out before, often just they were racing games, or they had racing mini games, and then they might have games within confined space, where you're like going up and down a skateboard ramp and trying to do a little bit of trick stuff. It's constrained spaces and it's constrained gameplay modes, and it didn't really capture the full excitement of skating. What the team at Neversoft decided that they wanted to do was they wanted to kind of take this top skater concept of just roving around doing tricks, ground it in a little more realism based on their own interest in skateboarding and skate culture, and create a game that balanced the simulation of semi-realistic skating with the fun of a video game just the joy of performing tricks out in the world. While they were getting started on that game using the same engine they used in Apocalypse, Activision, because in this period of time, which we'll talk about in more detail in a little bit, Activision is getting really focused on brands and having exploitable brands that they can use. So they want something or someone attached to this game. It's the same kind of impulse that led them to attach Bruce Willis to Apocalypse, I'm sure. They heard that one of the great skaters, Tony Hawk, had actually been attempting to pitch a skating game for a couple of years to various publishers, and it had no success. Hawk was not the one that instigated this, but there had been a PC developer that had come to him 
about partnering on a skateboarding game? Tony Hawk was like, sure, because Tony Hawk himself was a gamer and had played games growing up and was interested in this. So he and this PC developer had gone around to a couple of publishers. Midway kicked the tires on it. uh, Take Two kicked the tires on it. Nobody wanted to commit because they thought there was no interest in skating games. It just wasn't something that was capturing attention at this time because it was kind of right on the cusp of when extreme sports were kind of becoming big. And so these publishers didn't see anything in it. The Activision people heard that Tony Hawk had been pitching. So they came to Tony Hawk and said, hey, we're actually making a skateboarding game. How about you work with us? Tony Hawk said, sure, we'll do that. So it was a real collaborative process. I mean, many times, as we've talked about, when a celebrity's name appears on the box, it's just a marketing thing. I mean, maybe they came down and had a meeting where they were like, hey, this is what I think about the thing I do. Maybe they'll have a meeting like that. And then maybe they'll like take a look at a late build of the game and maybe offer a couple of tips. And then they'll do the press. They'll promote the game, but that's really all it is most of the time. But every so often, you will get a celebrity collaboration that is a real collaboration. That's what happened here with Neversoft and Tony Hawk. Tony Hawk was very keen to see this done. He was very interested in it, and he spent a lot of time with the team going over the intricacies of of skateboarding and skateboarding culture, helping them find that balance between fun and realism, because everyone wanted to do something authentic. Now, they didn't want to do something so authentic and so much a simulation that it sucked all the fun out of it. It was still a video game. They wanted something authentic. They wanted something that would resonate with people engaged in skate culture, and they wanted something fun. You know, to find this balance, at first they had a very complicated control scheme that was more like a fighting game in order to pull off combos using the D-pad, and they ditched that for much simpler uses of directional arrows and button presses because they wanted to find the fun. Joel Jewett, who was big into skateboarding, heavily encouraged everybody at Neversoft to go skateboarding. They would have group trips to skate parks and skateboarding venues where everyone, even people that weren't actually skaters, would take turns trying to perform tricks so that everyone would be enmeshed in this. They learned about the wider culture, the music that was being listened to, the fashions, all of the trends around this. They were aided in this by Tony Hawk, who also convinced some of the other people in the scene to contribute their likenesses to the game as well. The result of this collaboration was, of course, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, released in September 1999. Here, finally, was a game that propelled Activision into kind of the top tier of console game developers. They'd had some successes on PC, they'd had some games on console, they'd never really broken through in the same way on console as they had in some other areas. They tried a few things like the Apocalypse game that didn't quite pan out, but here was a game that really resonated with a portion of youth culture that was just becoming really big and provided something that spoke to them on the level of realism and immersion in the culture while also just being a really fun game. Within its first three months of release through the end of the year, it sold over 300,000 units alone in the United States over 350,000 units even. Over the course of its first couple of years on the market, it sold 3.5 million units worldwide, which at that time was a sizable console hit. That was a good hit. You're in the 3 to 5 million range. You're absolutely ecstatic over the moon in, in this time period in terms of console hits. I mean, that's a sizable hit product. 
you know, again, it's that kind of top skater gameplay. You know, they broke it down into the basic tricks of ollies, grabs, flips, and slides, assigned each one to a button. And then using the D-pad, you could do different types of each type, which meant that you had eight types of each moves, you know, eight grabs, eight slides, eight flips. With this very simple control scheme, which again, like I said, they ditched the fighting game scheme because they realized, hey, this can't be technically complex. This just needs to be fun. So by having this very simple, this type of trick with this button modified by using this D-pad input, they created a game where you could do all of these different variations on these tricks. You could chain them together, and then you would go around these open world levels and just perform as many tricks as you could, get as many points as you could within the time limit. It was something that had never been seen in skateboarding games before. It was more realistic, it was more fun, it was more interesting, and it really put Activision on the map as a console developer, Tony Hawk Pro Skater. That first year the game was on the market, obviously because of those accounting difficulties that we talked about, where they had the purchase of the value company that didn't work out. That first year on the market, the company didn't do that well for circumstances you know, outside of the control of the quality of the games themselves. In the 2001 fiscal year, which again mostly covers the year 2000, revenues rose again, as they have been every year, to $620 million, and now they had a $20.5 million profit, their largest yet. Now at this point, we should take a step back and discuss what Activision intends to do with all of this. Even before Tony Hawk came out, Bobby Kotick was starting to put a new concept in place for the company moving forward where they moved from their startup phase to what he called their institutionalized phase, where they're becoming something of an institution where they have more resources to work with. In the last episode, you said that Bobby Kotick went to investors and he said, I'm going to increase revenue every year for, I believe you said, five years. Right. But our profits are going to be very minuscule. We might lose a little money. We might gain a little bit of money. But trust me, after five years, we're going to be good. Is this that five-year demarcation point? I mean, it took a little longer, I think, to get there than he had initially said. For all intents and purposes, yes. By 1997, when they bought Raven Software, which was essentially five years after, because he bought the company in 1990, took control in 1991, but really started pushing his new way of doing things in 1992. 1992 was really the first year of that period. So if you look at 1997, revenue had gone up every year, and they had started posting some modest profits. They had the one hiccup in the one fiscal year, the 2000 fiscal year. But for the most part, yeah, they kind of made that first stage by 1997. When figuring out how to move forward, he decided to really put the emphasis on brand management. Brand management is nothing new, and it's not something that Bobby Kotick in any way created, obviously. Really, the company most uh, associated with the whole idea of brand management is Procter & Gamble, the big Cincinnati conglomerate that makes all of the everyday products you use that you don't even realize are Procter & Gamble products, because that name doesn't appear anywhere near them. For instance, Procter & Gamble is the maker of Tide Detergent. It's the maker of Crest Toothpaste. It's the maker of Charmin Toilet Paper. It's the maker of Downy. It's the maker of Head & Shoulders Shampoo. Procter & Gamble is one of the largest producers of these kind of commodities, home commodities, in the world. They even make Pringles. But you don't know that because Procter & Gamble isn't the name you see anywhere. The name you see is Tide. It's Crest. 
It's Pringles. It's not Procter & Gamble, because they were the ones that really created this idea of brands having power, and you market the heck out of the brand, and you put people in charge of each individual brand called brand managers that shepherd that brand through and see it to, hopefully, success. This is something that had periodically been tried a little bit in video games. I mean, it's not like it's anything new. I mean, brand management was something that Procter & Gamble really started doing in like the 50s and 60s. I mean, again, it's not a new concept. There had been other people that came out of P&G and other places like that that had been at video game companies. In fact, in the old incarnation of Activision, the Bruce Davis incarnation, the head of sales and marketing at that time, Stan Roach, was a P&G alum. It's not like it was a new thing. I mean, obviously, Electronic Arts had some sports brands, for instance, that they had been very successful with. What Bobby Kotick decided to do was to bring in a whole new group of executives from outside that video game industry space that had a lot of experience with this Procter & Gamble style of doing business and put them in charge of the company. Kotick had been serving as the chairman of the company. Brian Kelly, his business partner, had been serving as the president. And in 1998, Brian Kelly relinquished that day-to-day control, moved up to co-chairman, and they brought in an executive by the name of Ron Dornink who had spent years at Procter & Gamble before uh, taking a leadership position at ConAgra Food, another company that was into brand management. Dornick was brought in to basically transform the way Activision saw its product. He came in with a very strong idea that they needed to be heavily involved in managing brands and marketing brands within Activision, that they needed to move away from products that are one-hit wonders, use a lot of market research, identify markets, identify the interests of people within various markets, target those markets aggressively through product development and through marketing, and then build franchises that will stand the test of time. This is where a lot of the controversy with Activision comes in, because in the later years, the years that we're not going to be talking about so much, we're cutting the story short before then. There's a lot of talk about how Activision, Activision Blizzard, became very cynical in the way that it only promoted sequels to products, and it would release lots of sequels in rapid succession. There'd be franchise fatigue, and they'd kind of run things into the ground. There's a lot of talk about how this method of doing video game development takes the soul out of video games. There's some truth to that. Obviously, you have to be careful to try to avoid things like franchise fatigue when you're doing this, and you have to be careful that you're not just being cynical and you're not being closed off to new ideas. There are certainly arguments to be made that Activision and Activision Blizzard, by taking this method, started to close itself off to some of those things, and that some of their franchises maybe ended up having shorter life cycles because they ran them into the ground like that, releasing games every year, you know, annualized games. They were one of the first companies to try to annualize non-sports product. Like sports product, it made sense to annualize because there's always new rosters, there's rule changes, new uniforms, new stadiums. There's always something new every year in sports. So it kind of makes sense to annualize that. But as part of this approach, Activision really started taking a, a more annualized approach to a lot of its properties. 
you look at some other successful franchises in video game history, like Super Mario Brothers or Final Fantasy or Grand Theft Auto, very conspicuously, they don't do annual releases. Sometimes they go years between releases, depending. Those brands are still viable after, in some cases, decades. There's an argument to be made that the Activision approach has been a detriment, and I I think it's a fair argument to make. There's no doubting, however, that this approach created the Activision juggernaut in terms of a company that was able to grow rapidly, make lots of money, and eventually overtake Electronic Arts to become the leading third-party developer in video games. I don't know. There's probably a better balance there. There's probably something in between the Grand Theft Auto or the Elder Scrolls approach of only release one new game in the series every like six, seven, eight years and then make a boatload of money off it. And the Activision approach of sequel, sequel, sequels, run this franchise into the ground, then start another franchise and sequel, sequel, sequels until people lose interest in it. There's probably a middle ground there. I'm certainly not saying that people can't be upset at what Activision did, but there's no doubt that this focus on targeting demographics, incorporating sophisticated market research into game development, and marketing brands to the hilts, brands and franchises to the hilt, is what made Activision the success it was in the late 90s, the early 2000s, and beyond. I don't have the full inside scoop on all of this because I haven't really talked to anyone from this period, but I do think that Ron Dornink, who was brought in, as I said, at the end of 1998, had to have been a big part of that pivot, being someone who was so steeped in the Procter & Gamble brand management position and then could hire subordinates that were also kind of of that same mindset. But it was it all emanated from Bobby Kotick, who's the one that wanted to do this. But he took a different approach to the electronic arts approach, for instance, at first. Now, remember, we're only talking about the time period up to the Activision Blizzard purchase. I think there were shifts in the company later than that. We're just talking about this early period. Bobby Kotick could see that Electronic Arts had already done some of these things, and and he looked to Electronic Arts for a lot of his inspiration when he was trying to figure out where to take Activision, because after all, Electronic Arts is a company that had moved from strength to strength and become very successful to become the number one third-party publisher in all the video games. What he saw in Electronic Arts as it matured in the 90s as the EA Sports brand took hold and as they acquired a lot of studios and created a worldwide studio structure and were also doing a lot of focus on franchises, he saw a company that exerted a lot of top-down control over development studios. This has always been the belief about Electronic Arts. And again, I wish I had more inside input on Electronic Arts in kind of the mid to late 90s. This is some of the areas where I've still not built up the level of sourcing that I really need. But the image of Electronic Arts is a company that really did a lot of top-down management. They set up a worldwide studio system. They had a VP of worldwide studios. A lot of what would happen would be dictated by what that worldwide studios apparatus was willing to give individual studios. And those individual studios were very much forced to conform into an Electronic Arts way of doing things. There was a perception, both within and without Electronic Arts, that there was a large degree of corporate control that really chafed developers who liked to be creative and and do their own thing. 
What Bobby Kotick saw, what his vision was for Activision, is let's build that management team that is really savvy with market research and brands. Let's build an organization that can do market research, targeted marketing, focused products, all of that. But let's have them impart their expertise to the studios working for us, either that we own directly or that we're contracting to do work for us. Let's have them impart that information, but let's not force it down their throats. Let's maintain individual studio culture. Let's have the heads of all of our design groups have their own profit and loss responsibility, have their own capacity to make decisions about how they build their games, how they spend their resources. Let's advise them, but let's not dominate them, which was a very different approach to Electronic Arts. In these early days of the Bobby Kotick era, that created something that was very interesting within the video game space, which was this big company that, as we'll see, will very soon start acquiring studios left and right, but that prides itself on not assimilating them all into this machine. There was no VP of Worldwide Studios, to my knowledge, or something equivalent at Activision. There was the head of the company that, of course, had final decisions on what was going to be done. There wasn't somebody that was trying to enforce a worldwide studio mindset and a worldwide studio culture. That part of the business was left to the studio heads. They were even allowed to go get their own office space. Activision at headquarters would have some functions that they did themselves, and and then they'd have some functions they quote unquote charge their developers for. Like they had a tech team that was part of corporate that would be rented out to a studio if they needed extra help to get a product done. But they wouldn't be told how to run their businesses. They would each run their businesses their own way within the larger culture. I mean, the games they were making were largely dictated by Activision. Activision was telling them what to make, but they weren't telling them how to make them. I think that's a large part of where Activision had big success in these early days, even when they were moving towards this franchise model, even when they were doing this thing where they're trying to build brands. I think by keeping that individual studio autonomy going is how they were able to keep putting out some interesting games, even within the context of this kind of very corporate way of doing things. Whatever his later faults were, Bobby Kotick was the ringmaster of this as the, as the CEO of the company aided by uh, Ron Dornink as the president of the company, who had the brand management know-how to kind of make this all work. Tony Hawk was an early example of that. Targeted marketing, market research, they'd identified skateboarding as something that was becoming more important in youth culture, something that hadn't quite hit its mainstream success yet, but was really about to. Through market research, they figured that out. On the brand management side, they were like, okay, We're going to bring in Tony Hawk, because that's a big name. We can create a brand around Tony Hawk. But then they just told Neversoft, go make a skateboarding game. They didn't own Neversoft at this point. Later, they bought them. They didn't own them. They were a contractor, but they did not dictate to Neversoft how to make Tony Hawk. They were just like, make this kind of game, because our research says this could be big. Collaborate with this guy, because we can build a brand around him. Now go make your game. That feels like a real sweet spot, and I'm not saying that's a sweet spot that Activision and Activision Blizzard have maintained throughout their entire history to the present. There's a lot of evidence in later years, years that we're not going to cover, that Activision Activision Blizzard began exerting a lot more direct control over their studios, and there was a lot more friction. I'm not saying that this kind of perfect world persisted at Activision. 
But in this early time period of Activision becoming a superpower, this late 90s, early 2000s period, it really seems like it was this perfect merger of let's get the marketing experts in over here and let's have them do their thing, but let's let the creatives use that material in the way that they deem fit to create a hot property. And that's how we get something like Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. As you were going on there, I was thinking a lot of the same thoughts that you brought up. The seeds of having that constant iteration are being laid here, where you have Tony Hawk 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 15, 20, Call of Duty 36. But also you bring up that this is part of that transition where Activision is very much has its hands off as far as development goes, but it still has a guiding hand there. It has its hands on the range, but it's not jerking the horse left and right. It's sort of like, hey, let's just not go over the cliff over here. Let's just go on a nice path over there. Instead of going through the woods, let's go on this nice bridge. Mm -hmm. We're not going to really jerk where everything's going around. And I'd be interested to know where that inflection point became where something went wrong. Because we do know that when creatives are doing their own thing, they can go out of control and then something can happen where they just try to be too ambitious with something. They lose sight of that vision. They lose sight of what is actually doable, what is actually financially and systematically able to be done in order to create an end product. I wonder if there was something there or a string of something there where that happened and an Activision has to go, oh, I got to put a tighter rein, tighter rein, tighter rein, almost like power went to the head. Okay, yeah, if I have nice, good control here, everything's going great, going great. Why do my muscles hurt? (laughs) Right, it's that constant tension that we've talked about before. Activision in the early days under Kotick feels like it really found a sweet spot between that marketer, executive-dominated paradigm and that creative-dominated paradigm. And I'm not saying they've necessarily retained that to the present day. Again, remember, we're talking about a very particular time period in Activision history, which is the late 90s and the early 2000s. But I think in that time period, Bobby Kotick was onto something in the way that he was managing the company. They really focus on building brands. Not just internally, like Tony Hawk, but also licenses. So over the next few years, they do a lot of big licenses. They do one with Marvel, for instance, and they do various Spider-Man and X-Men games, some of which are actually very well regarded. They make a deal with DreamWorks and do some stuff on some of their later animated movies like Shrek 2 and Madagascar. They're trying to enter into licensing agreements that they can exploit for more than just one or two games. You know, they just don't they don't want to have a license just to have a licensed product. They want it to be a license that is going to have multiple products, something like Marvel Comics, where you have multiple uh, superheroes and can have multiple plot lines. So they're trying to build brands within and without the company. Their goal at this point, it is very fair to say, because people within the company themselves have said this, their goal at this point was to catch and surpass Electronic Arts. That's the big company. That's where they want to be. And to think, so long ago, they used to almost be buddy-buddy. Here, take my games. (laughs) Right. When looking for ways that they can go toe-to-toe with Electronic Arts, they know they can't compete on the sports. 
it's just an area where they don't have any internal expertise, they don't have any uh, built-up know-how, and Electronic Arts has already just totally dominated so much of the sports scene. So they know that that would be a waste of time. The big area where they can see themselves perhaps competing is in first-person shooters, which is the other big area that's grown up over time. Particularly, they think they have a chance to compete against EA's leading series in the field at this time, Medal of Honor. So for this, we need to give a little background. The entire idea of a console first-person shooter was basically non-existent at this time. There had been a couple of examples of games that had done well, but not too darn many. One of the few that had, of course, done well was GoldenEye on the N64. More important even, though, than GoldenEye being a game that kind of presaged a time where you could have first-person shooters on consoles, is that it was one of the first successful first-person shooters to drop you in a semi-real-world kind of environment. So what are the early first-person shooters that are successful? They're Doom. They're Quake. Even something like Half-Life, which mostly takes place in the modern world, is still dealing with trans-dimensional invasions, advanced science fiction technology, and all of this stuff that really isn't around. James Bond 007 is a heightened reality. It's not a realistic portrayal of the real world, but it's meant to take place in a contemporary setting and use contemporary technology, even if some of that contemporary technology like laser wristwatches gets a little bit out there in terms of plausibility, a heightened realism rather than complete science fiction, right? Yeah, you can believe that it's possible to have a super agent. And if you actually look at the history of 007 and Ian Fleming's and actually look at some of the stuff that historically happened, it's actually kind of frightening how well portrayed that is, at least as far as the machismo, the intrigue, the manipulation, all of that stuff is very true to form. Maybe not the futuristic gadgets and stuff, that's fluff for interesting stuff, but the bravery, the ability to really just go in there and look a KGB agent in the eye and lie to them verbatim and get the KGB agent to believe you is kind of amazing unto itself. Absolutely. GoldenEye introduced the possibility that maybe you didn't need to have a science fiction setting in order to have a first-person shooter. It just so happened that after the game came out, one of the many, many millions of people around the world that were playing uh, the game was a young man, teenager, I think still at that time, by the name of Max Spielberg. As you may have guessed, Mr. Max Spielberg is the son of one Mr. Steven Spielberg. As I think probably most people who listen to this podcast know, Steven Spielberg, in addition to being a fantastic and award-winning director, is also a serious, serious, and I mean serious, gamer. Steven Spielberg has always loved video games from the moment he played Pong for the first time at the boardwalk on location when he was filming Jaws. He gets into them. I mean, he's not just a, you know, a weekend kind of gamer. He loves video games. Always has. 
Unlike his Mexican equivalent, Steven Spielbergo. <laughs> who hates video games. And unlike his nerd counterpart, George Lucas, who has never been interested in video games, it's kind of funny that George Lucas ended up founding Lucasfilm Games, which became LucasArts, because personally, he never had any interest in that stuff. Spielberg really, really did. In 1994, Spielberg had teamed up with former Walt Disney Animation head Jeffrey Katzenberg and legendary record executive David Geffen to establish a new entertainment company, which still exists today, DreamWorks SKG, the SKG being Spielberg, Katzenberg, Geffen, a firm that was going to revolutionize entertainment in all sorts of different areas. That was the goal. One of those areas was video games. They established a company within DreamWorks, DreamWorks Interactive, in partnership with Microsoft. It was a 50-50 ownership between DreamWorks and Microsoft. They established DreamWorks Interactive, and they brought in real video game people, like Noah Falstein, for instance, from LucasArts. They brought in real video game people to be a part of this. They brought in people from Microsoft to be a part of this. They were serious about this. This wasn't just... Or in theory, let's put it that way, this was not just going to be, oh, clueless entertainment company also wants to get into video games because video games are big. No, Spielberg was passionate about video games. He wanted to have a leading video game company as part of all of this. In the early days of DreamWorks, Spielberg was actually on a bit of a break from directing. His wife was, I think, either pregnant or, or just had a child. And, and during that time, he was taking a, a break. I mean, he wasn't retiring or anything. It was just agreed upon with him and his wife that he would take a break. So he spent tons of time when DreamWorks was first started, just going to DreamWorks Interactive and brainstorming with the guys there. I mean, none of that stuff really went anywhere, the stuff he was brainstorming with that. But that just shows his level of passion for it. One thing that did get some traction is in 1997, he was finishing up the editing of Saving Private Ryan, which would come out the next year. He was seeing his son Max playing Goldeneye. He had a fascination with World War II, and he really wanted people to understand and get immersed in World War II, you know, with the same kind of level of passion that he had. I mean, that's part of why he did Saving Private Ryan. He went to the DreamWorks Interactive guys and were like, you know, this Goldeneye first-person shooter, this is really cool, and I bet we could do something like that in a World War II setting that people would really like. The people at DreamWorks Interactive were like, oh, sure, Stephen, whatever. World War II was seen as something that was of no interest from a game perspective. Gamers weren't history people. They were science fiction people. They were action people. I don't know what they were supposed to be, but they were theoretically not history people. This isn't me making a statement. This is just kind of the thought. It's like World War II is ancient. Nobody wants to fight World War II in video games. That's not what young people are into. But because Spielberg said do it, they start work on Project Normandy, which is going to be a World War II shooting game. We won't go into the whole making of that game because that's a, it's a different company, it's a different world, but we need this for the context, as I'm sure people know where this is going without me saying it. So they work on this game, Project Normandy, later named Medal of Honor, which releases in 1999 and becomes a massive success. It's the beginning of a new craze for World War II shooters. DreamWorks Interactive releases it and then immediately afterwards gets out of the video game business. Because the interactive division had not been profitable, DreamWorks had been having some financial issues, and even though Spielberg was very enamored with the idea of having a video game company, they decided that they had to make some cuts. 
So they ended up selling DreamWorks Interactive to Electronic Arts. So after that first Medal of Honor game is released, Electronic Arts takes up the mantle and, uh, you know, starts releasing follow-up product. Medal of Honor was released on PlayStation, following in the tradition of GoldenEye that it's okay to do first-person shooters on console games. But in addition to creating a sequel, a follow-up to the original Medal of Honor on console, Electronic Arts also commissioned a PC version called Medal of Honor Allied Assault. This game was developed by a little Tulsa, Oklahoma outfit by the name of 2015 Incorporated. It became a massive hit on PC platforms, selling almost 2 million units over its life. After Allied Assault was finished, Electronic Arts, exerting some more of that control, decided, now that this series was very popular and very established, that they were going to bring the Medal of Honor series in-house. 2015 was not going to do it anymore. This was a big blow for this small Tulsa, Oklahoma studio. Some of the employees there had already been kind of fed up with management anyway, and so with this making the studio's future uncertain, a group of them decided to go off and found their own development studio. This group was led by uh, three individuals in particular, Grant Collier, Vince Ampella, and Jason West. They initially got themselves a contract to work on something for another publisher. That deal kind of fell through. They basically made it known that the team behind Medal of Honor Allied Assault, which had been very successful, was now available to work on your next hit game. They initially negotiated a deal with Electronic Arts, actually, which would have had them found a studio in Los Angeles where Electronic Arts had already built up a big EA LA operation. They almost took that deal. But at the last moment, Activision swooped in and said that they would fund the creation of a new company if they would make a World War II shooter for them. They would give them $3 million, I think it was, in funding, but they also had to agree to give Activision the right to purchase the studio at a later point if they wanted to. They kind of turned the screws on them and said, oh, by the way, you have to agree to this deal today. You know, after today, the uh, deal is off the table. They chose the Activision deal over the Electronic Arts deal for some of the reasons that we articulated before. They were really afraid that if they aligned themselves with Electronic Arts, that they would end up being rolled into the massive EALA operation, lose their sense of identity, lose their independence, and just be another cog in a very large and impersonal machine. Activision was offering funding to make a game, but was offering to let them keep control of a lot of what they did. That was very appealing to Collier's Ampella and West. So in May 2002, they accepted Activision's offer and founded a new studio by the name of Infinity Ward and began work on what was codenamed Medal of Honor Killer. They were coming for it. Obviously, as part of their Medal of Honor Killer, they just didn't want to recreate what they'd already done in Allied Assault or what other EA development teams had done on the console games. They wanted to stand out. They wanted something different. One of the main things that they wanted to figure out was how to create a more kind of truthful war experience, because the Medal of Honor games were very much in the GoldenEye vein, 
which is not surprising since Goldeneye was one of the inspirations. You're not a secret agent in those early Medal of Honor games, but you're essentially some kind of super soldier. I mean, you're working for the OSS, which is kind of like being a secret agent, the forerunner of the CIA. You're doing these behind-the-scenes missions where you're going in and you're raiding facilities and you're sabotaging this and blowing up that. They have a few things, like there's a D-Day sequence, because of course there is. But I mean, a lot of it is doing very super soldiery or very James Bond kind of things. That's not what war is about, really. That's not what the experience of being a soldier is about. So they really wanted to get away from that. It just so happened that partway through development, they got inspiration from another team that was making a World War II shooter for Activision, a Medal of Honor killer for Activision, for consoles, because they were working on a PC game like Allied Assault. That's where their expertise was. There was also a console team making a version as well, the game that would become Call of Duty Finest Hour. What that team was doing is they were having a game where they would not just feature like one soldier, but they would actually feature multiple storylines in multiple theaters of World War II. They were going to have three different point of view characters, one British, one Russian, and one American, and have them run through various scenarios. That caused a light bulb to go off with the Infinity Ward people. It's like, we can do that too. Instead of focusing on a super soldier kind of James Bond guy doing the secret mission, which is what their Medal of Honor killer started out as as well before they had this epiphany, let's have multiple viewpoints and let's take in the whole grand sweep of the war rather than some silly single plot. Let's really bump up our AI. Let's make a friendly AI that can actually contribute to the combat. And instead of having this super soldier infiltrating thing, let's have battlefields and let's have the player be one soldier of many while still keeping it a single player game where you're the star, but you actually have this war going on around you across all of these different theaters of combat. That is the epiphany that led to Call of Duty. You're no longer James Bond. We're no longer Goldeneye. We're not even Halo. We're this super amazing Spartan that's better than everybody else. You're just another one of the soldiers in the war, and you're just trying to survive these missions with the help of your buddies. You have to apply tactics, and you have to work with your team. Mm -hmm. You have to learn how to open fire when it's appropriate to do so, not at an extreme range. Mm Mm-hmm. I'll throw in some videos that I have watched before, actual training videos that they used to show during this time frame of how, as a soldier, when you're supposed to open fire, what are you supposed to do as far as concealment so that you can take out a tank, so that you can take out a plane that's trying to do strafing runs against you, when you're trying to just do basic cover and attack, so you have people opening fire so you're not wasting ammunition as you're having your team get closer to them. They're actually doing things properly. I think it's interesting how Call of Duty tries to incorporate some of these thought processes. Absolutely. This was a whole new paradigm in how to do single-player first-person shooters. It was a whole new paradigm in how to do World War II shooters. It had the chance to be something big. The people at Activision recognized this. This was the PC version. Remember, sales on PC are never as good as they are on console platforms. 
you don't put the same effort behind marketing a PC game as you do a console game because you're not going to get as much return for your marketing dollars. It's just the math of the whole thing. They were working on a console version, which became Call of Duty Finest Hour with another studio. Normally, you would put a little effort behind something like Call of Duty and then call it a day and then move on. But Ron Dornink and the executive team at Activision recognized that this could be groundbreaking and this could be life-changing for this particular genre. And that even though this game in particular was a PC game, they were making a console game and there would certainly be other console games in the future. So they decided to treat Call of Duty the original Call of Duty, as a major blockbuster launch akin to a big console title launch rather than a PC launch. They did a big advertising campaign, bigger than they ever committed to to PC games, because they knew that the brand was going to carry them through and that the brand would become more valuable. And, you know, they're thinking now, this is the new Activision. This is the company that thinks about brand management and brand positioning and how we can take something and make it bigger through effective marketing and targeted outreach. So that's what they do with Call of Duty. So, I mean, the sales of Call of Duty aren't that impressive, like in the grand scheme of things, of the first Call of Duty. It probably got over a million worldwide, you know, at the the end of the day, but it, it wasn't huge in that sense. But it won all the Critics' Choice Awards. It got all the buzz. It got everyone interested. And, of course, it established a franchise that only got bigger and bigger and bigger as the years went on. Now, with Tony Hawk, Call of Duty, and some of their hot licenses like Marvel, they have a groundswell to be able to explode as a company. That's mostly where we're stopping it in terms of in-depth look, but just to very briefly take it through the rest of this period here. You have a company by the mid-2000s that has very strong brands and has pivoted its entire strategy to brand management and targeted marketing. You even see it in their 10K reports. Their 10Ks, instead of saying, we're an interactive entertainment company, they start saying that they're a company focused on brands. I mean, that is their raison d'etre. That's what Dornink and, and all of his people that he's hired are doing in this space. In 2000, they actually reorganized as a company in June 2000. They adopted a holding company structure where the original Activision actually became Activision Publishing. And then a new Activision Inc. was created as a holding company that Activision Publishing was a part of and the distribution company was a part of and all of this. So technically, the company today that is the original Activision founded back in 1979 is Activision Publishing Inc., which is a subsidiary of Activision, which is a subsidiary of Activision Blizzard or something. I don't know the whole chain. Activision Publishing, which uh, then Dorning is running as the president, becomes the publishing arm of the business. They expand this stuff on all these consoles. They're doing well. They start acquiring studios. So they had been working with several studios to port their games to various areas, and they start buying those studios. There was a company called Beanox, Canadian developer that had been doing a lot of their porting of their games to PC. They buy them in 2005. Another company that was doing a lot of porting for them in handhelds, Vicarious Visions, they buy in January 2005. Of course, neither Neversoft or Infinity Ward stay independent for long. Once they start churning out the hits, Neversoft is acquired by Activision in October 1999. You know, they acquire them very early on. Infinity Ward 
is purchased by Activision in October 2003. They buy those other couple of companies, Beanox and Vicarious Visions, as well as Toys for Bob in 2005. They're building an internal studio structure as time goes on. They've become a leading company on consoles with Tony Hawk and Call of Duty. They take what at the time is considered a big chance in 2006 and acquire Red Octane, the company that came up with the idea for and published Guitar Hero. They didn't develop it. Harmonix developed it, but it was Red Octane's idea. They went to Harmonix and said, hey, will you make this game for us? Guitar Hero just takes off insanely in 2007. You know, rhythm games take off insanely. It's a short-lived fad. They crash down to Earth almost as fast as they rise, but they become huge. And so that's another feather in their cap. And for the first time in the first half of 2007, they actually, just for the first half of the year, outstrip Electronic Arts in revenue. All of this time, revenue's been growing. 2005, they become a $1 billion company for the first time. When they hit $1.4 billion in revenue, they have a net income at this point of nearly $200 million. So they've become this major powerhouse. But there's one area that they have not really cracked yet. That's online gaming and the internet. Obviously, some of their games you can play multiplayer or whatever over networks, but they don't have a big hit in this emerging space of internet gaming, particularly MMOs. Again, something that can take a lot of time and a lot of expertise to develop and you know, is difficult for a new company sometimes to get into. Meanwhile, you have this company, Vivendi. Vivendi got into video games in a very strange way. You know, in the 1990s, we had the dot-com boom, right? And in the United States, this was uh, really shown, especially in, in internet stocks and in internet companies. In France, there was an aspect of this dot-com boom that meant the technology companies were suddenly very hot on the bourse, which is the main French stock exchange. It's kind of you know akin to the Dow Jones, you know, the New York Stock Exchange in the United States. As part of this wider tech boom in France, video game companies in France started getting really overvalued on the French stock market. The stock of these companies were being bought like crazy, and they were getting a lot of money that they could then invest in other properties. And this is something that never really happened in Europe before. All of this great gaming stuff that went on in Britain and everything, they could never get funding because the stock markets in Europe didn't care and you didn't have venture capital to the same developed extent as you did in the United States. So these were always small operations. But we talked about this some in our Infogram episode. Suddenly in France, in the late 90s, video games were hot. And companies that were in video games were seeing massive increases in their stock price, and they had the resources to really grow big in a way that European companies had never really had much of an opportunity to before. This touched on companies that weren't even in video games. There was a French utilities company called Havas who decided to get in on the internet thing and bought CUC International, which had bought Sierra Online and Davidson's and Associates, which also owned Blizzard. Havas was then purchased by another utility company called Vivendi. They were a public utilities kind of company, but they were just cashing in on this craze. And so they bought Havas because they were becoming a large, diversified entertainment company. Their chairman wanted to make them more than a utilities company. They bought Universal Pictures as well. They were buying up entertainment stuff everywhere, and they bought Havas, which gave them Sierra and Blizzard and all of this. So Vivendi... At the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s, it suddenly become a video game company. 
but really had no idea what to do with it. They had no presence on console, because both Blizzard and Sierra, those were PC companies. They tried founding their own internal development team. They hired away Tom Pettit, who had been uh, an executive at Sega for a very long time. He had left Sega before this. They didn't poach him from Sega, but they hired Tom Pettit, who had long experience in the coin-op world, more than the console world, to create them a console division at Vivendi in the early 2000s. But they just weren't able to make much headway. Vivendi was starting to think that this whole thing had been a mistake, that they should have never gotten into video games in the first place, and they were looking to sell the company. And then World of Warcraft happened. World of Warcraft just shot to the moon. It was such a popular MMO. It's still a popular MMO. But it was the first MMO that was measuring its subscriber base in millions instead of tens or hundreds of thousands. It was a phenomenon unlike anything that had been seen before in MMOs. Suddenly, it was making money hand over fist for Vivendi. Vivendi decided, shoot, okay, I guess we do need to take this video game thing seriously, and I guess we are going to stay in video games. But we have a problem. It's great that this MMO is doing well, but we still don't have any presence really in consoles. And that's outside of some crazy rocket like World of Warcraft. That's where the money is, is in consoles. It was actually Vivendi that approached Activision. Because since they were unsuccessful in building an internal console development apparatus, they decided they'd buy one because they had lots of money. Vivendi actually approached Activision and said, what would you say about us acquiring you? And we'll let you stay in charge. You know, you'll be our console division, essentially. Not that they're not allowed to make PC games, but it's like, you know, you'll essentially become the console division that we've always wanted to have. Bobby Kotick wasn't so sure he wanted to do it at first because it was his baby, but he decided that the opportunity was too good, mostly because of Blizzard. He met with Mike Morhaime, president of Blizzard, and he became super impressed with how Blizzard operated. And of course, he was super impressed with the success of World of Warcraft, which is something that Activision had not been able to do, was have that kind of big success in the online space like that. He ultimately, in 2007, decided to go ahead and sell the company because he saw those synergies there. The deal wasn't finalized till 2008 because it took a long time to get through regulators. The decision was made in 2007. And so Activision became a portion of Activision Blizzard. And of course, that combined company then became bigger than Electronic Arts. You know, they had briefly beaten Electronic Arts in revenue for a few quarters, but Electronic Arts was still the big dog. Those were just quarters where Electronic Arts didn't have much going on. But now this combined company, Activision Blizzard, was going to be a larger third-party developer than Electronic Arts. Bobby Kotick had finally reached his goal of dethroning that company, even though he had to sell out to do it. Of course, he didn't say sold out, but that is a story for another time, perhaps seven years from now. That is where we're going to wrap it up here. I know we kind of just briefly skated over the last few years, but again, that's just because there isn't a lot to put into context. I wanted to bring it to that ending point. The main takeaway here is how did Bobby Kotick, to sum this all up, resurrect Activision, a company that was on the brink of bankruptcy? He started by exploiting the IP that the company already had and the distribution that the company already had in a very savvy way. Once he was able to stabilize the company, he created a new paradigm focused on brand management, targeted marketing, and market research at the corporate level combined with creative independence at the developer level, and these two entities coming together to create franchises, both internally developed and licensed, that could be exploited for years to come. 
even though, as I said, cracks in that model became apparent later on. In this period, in the early 2000s, it created a powerhouse with so many powerful brands, Tony Hawk, Call of Duty, Guitar Hero, plus the Marvel stuff and, and some of the licensed things, which allowed them to merge with Activision Blizzard and become the largest third-party publisher in the world. There you have it. There's the rise of Bobby Kotick. We won't do the fall, but check back in in a few years and we'll see where we are. We more focused on the company as opposed to Bobby Kotick himself. He didn't really play a major role in the development of any specific game or anything. It was just sort of like, ah, yeah, we should buy that company. We should buy that company. He developed the company infrastructure and he developed the company culture and he put the people in place that could execute his vision. And that's what Bobby Kotick brought to Activision is kind of an ability to see the kind of company he wanted to have and and hire the people that could turn that into reality, which is what any CEO is supposed to do. They're supposed to be the visionary. They're supposed to be the one that sets the direction and then finds the good people that can execute. And at least in this early period, that's exactly what Bobby Kotick did. Just don't micromanage things to death, kids. (laughs) Happy anniversary. But we are going to have to tell you more tales of horror in our next episode, where we get to go on a grand adventure with a rogue and stabbing thing. That's right. I think it's fair to say that one of the most vibrant genres in indie gaming today, from The Binding of Isaac to Dwarf Fortress to FTL to Hades and beyond, is the roguelike in all of its various permutations. If you go on Steam, just about all of the top games that are, you know, not AAA games, but are, you know, indie games from smaller publishers, just about all of them are roguelikes in some way, shape, or form. It's it's a genre that has really taken over. So this seems like a good opportunity to go back to the roots of the genre, see how it started with a little game called Rogue, and how that game grew, and how successors to that game emerged in the 80s and in the 90s that kept this whole thing going until it finally merged into this indie game scene and created this wide array of various roguelikes that we have today. This is going to be a two-parter. As we said, we've already planned out a few things since we have our big stream coming up. Our next job uh, before our big streaming thing on September 24th is to take a two-part look at Rogue and the roguelikes that it spawned and see how the biggest genre in indie gaming came to be. Then we will see you next time on They Create World, where we get to go on a rogue survival. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the scenes that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, the story of the people and companies that shaped the video game industry, volume one, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. You can help get the word out about the show by leaving us a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.